This is Monique John, and you're listening to the first episode of Cuckween, a blog and podcast drama telling the story of the disastrous relationship I became ensnared in while reporting on Liberia's 2017 presidential election in Monrovia. If you haven't already, make sure to listen to the last installment, Introducing Cuckween, that will give you some background on the series. Also, be sure to go to thecorrespondent.com where you can find the blog posts of the series, original photos reenacting the story, and the Cuckwean soundtrack. The link is in the show notes. Today's episode, episode one, is entitled, When Mo Met Bo. When Liberians ask me how I like living in Monrovia, I always have to edit myself before I even say anything. I'm afraid that I will unintentionally offend or disappoint people if I tell them the truth. After having lived in the city for almost a year, I've been miserable in Monrovia for a good portion of it. My experience of Monrovia has, in part, been shaped by the worst of my experiences with my ex-boyfriend, Boris. Every day that I spend in Liberia is a day that I subconsciously feel I must prove to myself that moving here was worth the frustration, humiliation, and alienation I've endured at times while trying to advance my career and enjoy the rite of passage of living in a foreign country as an adult. I look for the silver linings of having gone through my relationship with Boris, just like I diligently seek out Monrovia's beauty from the debris and sand that line its streets. Ponds and patches of grass are covered by piles of yogurt cups, banana peels, plastic bags, and corn cobs that have been indiscriminately thrown about by people deprived of waste baskets. Trash lines the local beaches as well, ruining what would otherwise be stunning coastline views of the Atlantic Ocean. There is hardly enough greenery to suck up the stench from the garbage, the body odor, and the piss that are laded into the sidewalks. If you're paying attention, you can spot swaying lush palm trees and clusters beside pricey expat-filled apartment complexes and NGO offices while strolling through Sincor's beachside streets. But they're scarcely seen on Tubman Boulevard, the central avenue that runs all the way through town. And the city's architecture is an eyesore. Gaudier new structures like Royal Hotel, TM Mall, and Boulevard Palace are surrounded by concrete blocks lined with wooden slabs waiting to be finished, tin-roofed house settlements, and paint-chipped houses and churches reminiscent of the 80s. Some of the buildings look like ambitious efforts to beautify and modernize the city. Some of them look like skeletons of the city that the war left behind. My last home in Monrovia is like a microcosm of the city it resides in. This place is rough, I once said to my ex-boyfriend Boris, before I moved in with him and his family. Even as someone who once lived there, it's hard to believe that the privileged people inside of it continuously choose to make it their home in the way that they do. They probably do this because the house has such great potential. At its peak appearance in the 70s and 80s, I'm sure it looked like a beacon of upper-middle-class Liberian society with its high ceilings, its expansive front porch, and the pool that once sat in its backyard. Yet years of negligence and destruction makes you wonder what could have been when you set your eyes upon it. The place once housed squatters after the conflict, before Boris moved back in with his siblings once they were grown. Half of the gate to the front yard lies in overgrown grass behind a concrete fence. The entire house has been mercifully stripped. There's no front door, only a dusted, corroded steel sheet that is only locked late at night, making it easy for a Zogo, also known as a ruffian that likely fought as a child soldier in the war, to wander in and cause trouble during the day. 
There's no kitchen either, only a small dark cave in the back that used to house food and appliances. Clothing lines tacked with dripping laundry hang through empty living areas where mice run and dogs relieve themselves. For the first few weeks that I spent in his home, I usually only set foot in Boris's room. His loving bed leaned on one side, and it was propped up by a paint can after the wooden frame fell apart. His toilet did not flush, and a collection of water gathered under his sink when you turned on the tap. The sliding doors, the bedroom's only access to fresh air, did not work, and my ex used old sheets lined with rings of grease for curtains. I found leaves, expired mayonnaise jars, and collections of gravel behind furniture and under mountains of clothes. Small, half-drunken bags of water and empty liquor bottles were everywhere. I didn't dare let my soles of my feet touch the floor. I'm sure you're asking why I would submit myself to living under such deplorable circumstances. Monrovia has a funny way of dropping expats into situations they never could have imagined themselves in, much less tolerated or entertained in the developed world. I would never have even dated Boris if I had met him in New York. He wasn't my type. I'm a beautiful woman, so I'm used to dating men who are at least moderately good-looking. Next to his fluffy, unassuming figure with its rotund bare belly and receding hairline stood a slender woman with long legs, a small waist, and a pretty face. We were an odd-looking couple. There's a notable age difference, as well, making me feel at times as if I were in some cliché May-December romance that I would have been embarrassed by as an outsider observing from afar. Still, I held Boris's hand in public and dutifully lay down for him behind closed doors. I wasn't sexually attracted to my boyfriend, but I loved him, and I assumed the role of his companion all the same. No, this man was not rich, nor did he live comfortably. There was nothing striking about his face. He had a curious way of dressing himself, showing up to dates and business meetings in clothes that had noticeable rips and stains, or simply looked unflattering and mismatched. There was nothing about the way he spoke, or carried himself, that was particularly seductive, and his day-to-day -day life was perfectly ordinary, far less interesting than the other, more physically attractive men around Monrovia, who had been vying for my attention back then. Yes, Boris was an underdog from the beginning. He was always being overshadowed by guys like Deugar, the suave, good-looking playboy I hit it off with at the very party where I met both of them for the first time. It tickles me now to think of the circumstances under which we all met. I had only been in Monrovia for about a week, sometime last year, on a thick, warm August night. Liberia's presidential election was picking up, as voting day was just a few months away, but I hadn't filed my first story yet. My living situation was modest, and I'd only brought one suitcase worth of clothes with me to the country. I showed up at the party with all the highfalutin expats and bougie, upper-class Liberian people wearing my ill-fitting jeans and frizzy, teeny-weeny afro. In any case, Deugar and Boris saw something they liked, and I think they could smell my fresh blood. I was at the party waiting for a friend, Essence, to arrive when I happened to strike up conversations with both of them on separate occasions. Boris was nice enough to talk to, and he made it obvious at one point that he was romantically interested in me. Yet I was taken by Deugar, and I was disappointed when he bid me goodnight without taking my number. A few weeks later, I would start dating Deugar after he caught me jogging on the campus of the University of Liberia. I ignored Boris's texts while Deugar was making promises of weekend jaunts to Libasa and Sierra Leone. Still, I liked Boris. 
He was humble and approachable. I was impressed by his kindness, or at least what looked like genuine selfless acts of kindness at the time. He was helpful in situations I struggled to navigate by myself, like when I needed him to act as a translator for when I was speaking to locals who only knew Liberian English, or when I needed to be connected with someone in town. I aspired to his goodwill, and he felt like a safer, more wholesome option for a romantic partner than the playboy who had begun to feel distant and negligent. So I pushed Ayugar away and began seeing Boris. To my pleasant surprise, we got along well, and things progressed quickly. Dinners for two turned into morning jogs and beach outings with his family in less than a week. We soon started spending time with one another, almost every day, hopping around town and sleeping over in each other's homes. It was a huge leap from my convention of only seeing boyfriends once a week when I was back in New York. Actually, the fact that I was dating at all was a huge leap of faith I was making with these men, as I had no interest in pursuing anyone romantically when I came to West Africa. People often teased me before I moved, saying that I would probably meet my Prince Charming in Liberia after a string of failed relationships back home in New York, but I didn't come to Liberia to find my soulmate. I was only interested in leaving my hard life as a blogger in New York behind, so I could write my book and reinvent myself as a foreign correspondent. I already had told myself that with all of the work I had to do to move my career forward, my love life would need to take a backseat. I'm a very introverted and ambitious person, so I didn't mind the possibility of feeling a little lonely at times if abstaining from the dating world would keep me focused on accomplishing my goals. So it was a real shock and source of amusement that I ended up receiving so much romantic attention when I came to Monrovia. And I think that as a single woman trying to find her way in a new town, I found myself lowering my standards for the company I kept because I was eager to make new friends and feel supported. Monrovia is a tough place to live, and playing with doting, affectionate men is its own kind of survival mechanism. I was excited and bright-eyed about this adventure of living abroad, but I was up against a lot of anxiety and self-doubt back in those early days of living in Liberia. I've been getting my start as a freelancer and consultant, so working for myself with various clients was new to me. People in Monrovia and back in America often commended me for taking what they felt was a brave and noble career move to become a foreign correspondent, but I suffered from imposter syndrome, and when I became overwhelmed, I started feeling like my decision to move abroad and write a novel was an absurd stunt that I would someday regret. This is why I largely think I chose Boris. Not only did he take care of me, but he also encouraged me to stay the course of my reporting and entrepreneurial aspirations. Whenever I became neurotic about my career, I was grateful to have him because he looked after me day in and day out when I injured my foot and was stuck hobbling around on crutches. He was open about his past. Being around him made me more compassionate with myself. I slept poorly lying in Deugar's bed, but I slept very easily beside Boris. He had become an unexpected asset to my life and I wanted to become more of one in his, and I started thinking that it was time I become more open-minded about the kind of men I date by being less superficial and doing more to acknowledge the beauty in people despite their quirks. But even though I was getting along nicely with Boris, I just wasn't sure that I really wanted to be in this relationship with him. Initially, it was encouraging to see that we'd been moving so fast, but it soon became evident that we'd moved too fast, I began to sense that the vast amount of time we were spending together was starting to feel suffocating and exhausting, despite the fact that I enjoyed this man's presence. Plus, no matter which way I sliced it, 
I couldn't get over the fact that I wasn't sexually attracted to him. I enjoyed some of our lovemaking because it started out as an act of trust, tenderness, and gratitude, but there were unattractive things about the way he lived that were hard to ignore. I started to wonder if some of his quirks were actually red flags about his relationship with himself that would get in the way of us being happy together. Here I was, with this new-found companion who seemed to have a heart of gold, who had taken me in and made me a part of his family, who seemed like such a beautiful, lovely person, but his exterior was worrisome and suggested that something had seriously gone wrong. Looking back, I can see how the emotional energy I spent reconciling my concerns about Boris's quirks and lifestyle with my benevolent feelings for his personality was straining our ability to connect with one another. There were petty things, like how his excessive sweatiness often made him less approachable. Then there were big things, like my bafflement and his comfort with maintaining exceptionally poor standards of living. The rough, filthy conditions in which he kept his home were well below his status as a privileged middle-class professional. I didn't understand how he could be so complacent in living in such dysfunction. I felt guilty thinking any judgmental or critical thoughts about him because I thought that he was sweet for going to great lengths to take care of me. Yet I was turned off to see that he rarely took care of himself, an issue that was visible in his appearance. And so somewhere along the way, our sex life became strained and I started occasionally turning down his advances. Sometimes I felt like cuddling instead, I reasoned that doing so would take less emotional energy and make it easier for me to reconnect with the foundational intimacy Boris and I had forged before we began having sex. I got the feeling that just us holding each other would make it easier for me to understand exactly how I felt about my boyfriend. I also thought it would remind me of why I entered this relationship in the first place. Other times, I turned Boris down for reasons that had nothing to do with him. On one occasion, I just wanted to rest my injured foot and was disinterested in further tiring myself by twisting around into different positions. And on another occasion, I was frustrated with life in Liberia and wanted to be left alone so I could lie in bed and pretend that I wasn't where I actually was. But no matter the reason, my rejections hurt Boris's pride. And one day, he started protesting. What? You don't want to have sex with me anymore? He snarled. There was a bass and edge to his voice that I'd never heard before. I lamented that I was tired and wanted to rest. You've turned me down three times this week. Oh, don't take it so personally, I snapped back. My foot was still recovering after I had seriously injured it, and it was my foot that was tired again. I was also starting to feel suffocated by the immense amount of time we were spending with one another. It turned out that seeing him every day gave him the expectation that I would have sex with him every day. It was an expectation that I didn't have the time or sexual and emotional capacity to meet, and I didn't like that suddenly he seemed entitled to my intimacy, as if I was supposed to dole it out in portions as long as he invested a certain amount of time and number of dinner dates around Monrovia to warm me up. He hovered above me in bed for a moment, then he let out a big sigh before plopping down back on his pillow in the dark. Boris didn't want to cuddle, he didn't want to talk. He didn't want to lie in bed and ponder the mysteries and challenges of life or the curious, infuriatingly tiresome minutia of being in Liberia. Boris wanted to fuck, and I was preventing him from doing so. I was keenly aware of this, and the guilt of turning him down was eating away at me. 
You've been listening to Cuck Queen, a blog and podcast drama telling the story of the disastrous relationship I became ensnared in while reporting on Liberia's 2017 presidential election in Monrovia. On the next episode, episode two, a scandalous bomb drops as the pressure mounts for me to submit to Boris's sexual advances. Keep following the story here on the Cuck Queen podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. Also, be sure to go to thecorrespondent.com, where you can find the original blog post to the series, original photos reenacting scenes from the story, and listen to the Cuck Queen soundtrack. The link to thecorrespondent.com is in the show notes. Thanks for listening.